0: I'm in a wicked good mood for the 10.45 service, just to let you know. The nine, the nine o'clock, I was a little grumpy, not gonna lie to you. So like nine o'clock last night, it dawns on me, oh wait, we gotta fast forward the clock. So it's really like 10 o'clock. So I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get jacked out of an hour of sleep. So I was grumpy this morning, driving down in the dock. Um, but I'm in a better mood because I've just been reflecting like Mrs. Duboc right there, she's awesome. We don't, you don't need me to preach to you after that, right? So you got her. Uh, the Bruins won 3-1 to one yesterday. I was at the game. I'm pretty happy about that. Uh, it's warm out, so things are, things are good. Hey, I'm Brian, by the way. If you didn't know, uh, I'm one of the pastors that get to serve in the life of this church. It's a joy for me to do this with you this morning. Uh, most of the time, I'm hanging out in North Andover. But every once in a while, they allow me to hang out with you guys in Andover. And that's what's happening this morning. And we're going to be continuing our series, uh, The Everyday People of God, looking at First Peter 4, 12-19. You know, as a former drug addict... Uh, one of my favorite phrases to use with my drug dealers was, uh, I'm good for it. You ever used that before with anyone? Uh, so what would happen is, is uh, you know, I'm out of money. I'm looking to get my fix. And uh, I'd be, you know, pleading with my, my dealer, you know. Hey, I know it's Wednesday. Uh, I get paid on Friday. Do you think you could front me a few, few things and help me out here? You know I'm good for it. You know I'm good for it. Like, I, I, I promise. You can come with me to cash my check if you want. You know I'm, I, I think the check's coming in Friday. I'm good for it. Or maybe for, you know, in some way, shape or form, um, you know, you have to sit across from a, at a bank and you're applying for a loan and need some money. And, and in some ways, you're trying to petition to the bank on why you need money to help you out of a, a spot or why you need money to help you purchase a car or a home. You know, and so so in some ways, your work record is a way of saying, like, I'm good for it. The fact that I got a job, I'm employed, I'm going to get a paycheck every week, I'm going to make good on my payments, right, is a way of us saying, I'm good for it. But here's what I want to wrestle with you. I want to wrestle with this text with you this morning, and it's this. Um, How do we know God is good for it when we face suffering? How do you and I know God's good for it when cancer shows up on the scene? How do you know God's good for it when a loved one is uh, in the chains of addiction? How do you know God's good for it when a loved one, you lose a loved one unexpectedly? How do you know God's good for it when you can't make your rent or you can't make your mortgage payment? How do you know God's good for it when uh, struggling financially financially? Can barely make ends meet? Can barely put food on the... How do you know God's good for it? How do we know God is still faithful and loving and good and trustworthy in the midst of suffering and trial and hardship in our life? And I recognize that many of us are walking into this place maybe right in the midst of it right now, and you're saying, yo, Brian, you know... How how can you tell me right now that God can be good for it if I'm going through what I'm going through? I'm only here because wifey wanted me to come with me or or, or my husband dragged me here or, or, you know what, if I keep going, maybe God will, will recognize me and see me that I'm a good person by me just showing up. But how is God good for it in the midst of our suffering? How can we maintain a consistent faith both when things are going great and when things just aren't going great whatsoever? So that's what we want to do this morning. We want to see how we can connect the loving and faithful God with our suffering. You want to pray? Let's do it. Father, please be really, really gracious. I beg and plead, God, that you'd open the eyes of our heart to see that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are not just unaware of our suffering, that you have not just wound up some clock and then taken a break. You're on a divine break while we go through what we go through here in this thing called life, I pray you would help those of us in here who need it this morning to know that you are with us, that you are a faithful God. We don't sing that song just for kicks. But God, help us to grasp onto that beautiful truth that you are good and you are trustworthy in the midst of it and that there's purpose. So God, please, minister grace deeply to the soul that needs it this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, six things that we're going to see as we dig through this text that Peter shows us of how we can connect a loving and faithful God with our suffering in our everyday life. The first one is this. We are loved by God. 1 Peter 4.12. The translation we read says, Dear friends, there's another translation that says, a better translation that says, Beloved, beloved. Right away, that word should send off a smoke signal to you And I, Because there's something very foundational in our relationship with God. And the fact is this, is that we are beloved. If you are in Christ, you are now a beloved child of God. You are loved by the Father, and that love will never, ever disappear. That love will never, ever be absent from you here in this life, no matter what you go through. Now, listen, there can be pushback on this in culture, right? Because suffering shows up on the scene in some way, and you can start to ask the question, Does God even love me? Like, what's the deal here? If I'm going through what I'm going through, if he sees and knows and is aware of my situation in life right now, there's no way you can tell me, Paige, that he loves me. My suffering must mean that God's not with me or that he doesn't love me or that he's absent in some way, shape, or form. And right here, this is the heartbeat, essentially, of Peter's letter to the Christians that he's writing to because they're facing persecution similar to what that lady Elizabeth in the video was experiencing. They were being slandered. They were being verbally abused for their faith. Some of them were being persecuted and facing physical assault just like Elizabeth and her husband for proclaiming Christ and living for Christ. And so here they are, and Peter wants to send off the smoke signal that just because suffering shows up on the scene in some way, shape, or form in your life, whether it's through verbal abuse or slander because of who you claim to be, or because cancer shows up, or because there's some sort of financial struggle, Just because our suffering happens in life does not mean that God does not love us. Peter sends off the smoke signal by saying, Beloved. Before he says anything else, he says, Beloved, as a reminder that you are loved by God, that nothing in this world will ever separate you from that love that Jesus Christ has for you. Nothing will ever separate you from that love. Because beloved has been secured. My new identity as a child of God has now been secured by what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. And that now, because of what Jesus did, I was once a lost son. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, I'm now a welcome son before the Father. That when the Father looks upon me, even in the midst of my suffering, he says, I am well pleased with my son because of what Jesus did. You are my son, whom I love. Because of what my son Jesus did for you. And if that's true, if we're a child of God, we now have God as our Father who is loving. First John says it like this. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. So scripture, Peter eliminates a common cultural misunderstanding that if we suffer, it's because the love of God is absent. Peter starts with just the most important piece in unifying, suffering with a loving God when he says, beloved. Friends are gonna turn their back on you. Things are gonna happen. Life is gonna get tough in many ways, in many shapes. And some of you are walking through that right now. But I want you to hear me this morning in all of it. And I need to hear this this morning too with you. In all of it, it does not mean that God does not love us. We are reminded that beloved has been secured By Jesus, you are loved by the Father. That's first. Secondly, we expect suffering. Peter wants us to remember that we should be expecting suffering. We should not be surprised by our suffering. Look at 1 Peter 4.12 again. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. Now listen, you could be walking in here and you could be going, ho, ho, yo, Paige, what's the deal? Like, what the heck is going on with my suffering here? Why is this happening to me? Why? I've been a pretty good person. I'm pretty decent in the morals department. I've been doing the church thing for 25 years. I've been a a member here. I've given faithfully every single week. And even when we have stewardship moments, I'm always eager to give extra to help out in whatever way because I believe in the mission of this church to the people of Andover and North Andover. I volunteer. I I go to a small group. I raise my kids. They do pretty good. Some of them are going to college. Things are going pretty well. I've been a pretty good person. So why the heck is this happening? If you are telling me that I am a loved child of God who is loved affectionately by the Father, why is this happening to me? Following the reminder of God's love to you and to me, Peter wants us to know that you should expect suffering because being ready and being anticipatory for hardship and being ready for trial and being ready for suffering in whatever shape or way it takes place in our life, helps us absorb the blow of it when it lands down upon our life. Peter uses the word fiery. He says fiery ordeal. Fiery refers to something severe, something painful, something extreme, something severe, something big. The crowd Peter was writing to could identify with severe. There are plenty of Christians and people in the world today, like Elizabeth, who can identify with severe Who can identify with fiery? There's some of you probably in here right now. You can identify with fiery. You're you're nodding your head in some way, shape, or form going, yeah, I can identify with fiery. I've been through there. I'm through it right now. Peter says don't count it as a strange deal because suffering is a reality in life. And listen, it does not go away just because you decide to follow Jesus. Sometimes the common misunderstanding can be, well, hey, I've been taught or I've heard on TV or, or somewhere that, that, that told me, like, if I become a Christian, like, life gets better. Life gets easier. Like, it's all about, like, ponies and, and, and sunshine and, and, uh, and happy days and worship songs and there's never a cloud in the sky and people are always smiling at me and they like me and, like, things are great in life, right? That's what the Christian life is all about. I have a friend who, who walked through this became a Christian, and his understanding in some way earlier on when he had kind of gone to church, parents took him to church, was that, hey, uh, if you become a Christian, things will get easier. But as he started to kind of sift through the Bible a little bit and kind of explore Christianity, he was trying to figure out whether or not he really wanted to make this thing his own. He was a skeptic for a long time. He started to read things like John 16, where Jesus says this, "'In the world you will have tribulation.'" But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And so when he made the decision to follow Jesus, he was ready for the suffering when it came. And it came, and it was actually more intense when he became a follower of Jesus. His wife left him, he lost his job, lost his home, lost a lot of things, all for the sake of following Jesus. But he was able to do it. You and I are gonna to come to a point, we're gonna to come to realize at some point in our journey with Jesus that suffering is to be expected, but a walk of faith does not mean immunity from suffering. We will suffer. For some of us, it comes early. For some of us, it comes later. For some of us, it's already happened in some ways, some severe ways. For some of us, it's happening right now, and for some of you guys, it hasn't happened yet, but it will come at some point. But don't be surprised by it. Expect it. God will actually use this thing as a building block to draw you closer to him. I'm going to hit on more of that in a little bit, all right? But the question becomes this. uh, How can you and I handle suffering and have joy at the same time? Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. Even as I try to wrap my narrow, not that smart brain around concepts like this, how can suffering and joy be married together? It's our third thing that Peter wants us to see. We rejoice in Christ's victory and our awaited glory. It's there in 1 Peter 4.13. You can take a glance at it. The victory that Jesus accomplished through his life and death and resurrection is our number one source of joy when suffering lands upon the soul. Jesus himself walked a road to glory that was marked with sufferings, and so the promise to you and I is, we will walk a road towards glory that will be marked with suffering. But do you know what that means? As we look to Jesus, as we follow Jesus in life and face suffering, we can be assured of the trail that has been blazed before us by Jesus as we walk on it, as we focus on Jesus. And we can be assured. We can actually rejoice in the glory that awaits us. We can rejoice in the end result. We're just in the... I was talking about this with my father-in-law yesterday. Sometimes we're, we're in the process right now, right? We're in this thing called life, and it's this, this process. But God sees the finished product. God knows the end result. God sees the end result with you and I. And he's bringing us to that end result. It's why Paul could say with confidence that I know that Jesus is not finished with his work in me. I can be sure of this, that Christ will complete the work that he started in me. That's why Paul could say in Romans, the Spirit himself, he will come and he will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, he says, there was a joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the cross. And that joy for Jesus was knowing that the work that he was about to do in going to the cross and suffering and facing crucifixion and being buried And bearing our sins was going to secure the salvation for tons of people who needed to be blown away by grace because there was no other way. And so Jesus, even in the midst of suffering and torture and abandonment from his friends on his way to the cross, did it with joy because he knew the mission that was set out for him and what it would accomplish, which was you and I being welcomed into the family of God as the children of God, now loved by the Father. If we have that beautiful truth before us that Jesus did that for us with joy, you and I can walk this road called suffering with joy, rejoicing in what Jesus did. And we can know that our suffering, when it comes into our life, does not come purposeless. The suffering that came to Jesus had a purpose, and that purpose was for you and for I to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And so if that's true, that our that, that, that suffering is true with Jesus, then our suffering has purpose. It's not just purposeless, it's not just aimless, it doesn't just happen with no end result or purpose in it. Tim Keller puts it like this. We must realize that our most rapturous delights we have ever had in the beauty of a landscape, or in the pleasure of food, or in the fulfillment of a loving embrace, are like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that it will be like to see God face to face. That is what we are in for, nothing less. And according to the Bible, that glorious beauty and our enjoyment of it has been immeasurably enhanced by Christ's redemption of us from evil and death. Peter said earlier in his letter, this thing called the gospel, the beauty of what Jesus has done is something that angels long to look into. They long to gaze at the beauty of the redeeming work of Jesus for sinners. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. So listen, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they're eternal. Listen, Jesus Christ is the only one who can marry suffering and rejoicing and make the two of them work in a relationship. He's the only one. If I ever get myself caught on just trying to be a positive person in the midst of my suffering, or trying to look for, uh, look for my wife, Danielle, who's an amazing person, by the way. You gotta meet her. If I try to look for hope or rejo- uh, encouragement or happiness or a source of comfort, always in my wife or in my children or in a friend or in the Bruins, chances are they are going to let me down at some point if I'm using them as my source of joy in the midst of my suffering. Or if I'm just trying to be positive, just trying to think positively, those things will let me down. But looking to Jesus, being assured of what his suffering accomplished for you and for me can cause us to rejoice in the midst of our suffering or hardship, or trial, whatever it may be. Fourthly, Peter alludes to this. He says we can rest in God's presence through it. You can look at verses 14 to 16. Because the Spirit of God rests upon us, you and I can rest in God's presence through our suffering. And so do you know what that eliminates? The common cultural misunderstanding that God leaves us or that God abandons us, or that he went over to D'Agostino's downtown, which is, by the way, the best sandwich in town if you haven't been there yet. (laughs) Right next to Dunkin' Donuts. Or that God's on a lunch break in some way while we suffer or face hardship in our life. That God's out grabbing a sandwich, that he's absent, he's not around, he doesn't know, he's not aware, or he doesn't care. Peter says, guess what? You have the presence of God in the midst of your suffering, and you are a blessed child of God Even in your suffering, the blessing of God still rests upon you. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted. This is a type of suffering. Persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you know what can be a common tendency when suffering shows up on the scene? I'll confess some of my struggles in this area to you, and maybe you can resonate. So when suffering comes on the scene in my life, do you know what typically happens for me? I tend to isolate. So suffering or some sort of trial or or hardship, I'll be pressed and and feeling crappy about life because something's happening. So instead of drawing close to God, what I tend to do is I isolate I start to feel shame over my suffering in some way. I start to feel as though the people that God is surrounding me with, my friends or my family or my loved ones or the people who care about me in some way, they can't identify with what I'm going through. Or they're going to look at me differently or you're going to look at me differently if I'm going through suffering in some way. How can they identify with what I'm going through? I feel like I'm the only one who's struggling with what I'm struggling with right now. And so the tendency for me is to pull back from friends, is to pull back from, from help, To pull back from God and to isolate and to clam up. You know where that leads me to? Temptation. That leads me to all types of temptation. Temptation to find happiness and joy and some other resource other than God. To find love and acceptance elsewhere rather than in the gospel. What the gospel tells me that I'm loved and accepted through what Jesus did for me. And now I'm loved by the Father. I'm tempted to find love and acceptance elsewhere. I'm tempted to doubt the love of God. I'm tempted to doubt the goodness of God. I'm tempted to doubt that I could even trust God if he would allow these type of things to happen to me. This is what happens when I isolate. Can you feel me? Have you been there? A little practical wisdom here, right? A little practical application here is this. Is even in the midst of this, as we walk through this text, is this, is that you can press into God. You have the presence of God. That God's with you and surrounding you and hears you and knows you and wants to commune with you even through it. So we can press into God. We don't have to draw back from God like he's mad at us or hates us. We can also press into each other because chances are, what I've just said is the experience of some of you in some way, shape, or form. That in some way, shape, or form, you've experienced suffering and you've experienced trial and you're in the midst of it right now. And there's a reality that we need each other even in the midst of this, as we walk through this, that I'm not called to walk through it alone, but that I have God as my Father walking with me through it, but I also have the community of brothers and sisters who face trials in sufferings just like I do. And so the challenge for me even this week has been this, is to press into the people that God has put into my life to walk with through this that won't shame me or make me feel guilty about it or make me feel different. Knowing God personally when in the midst of suffering is a big key to becoming stronger in it rather than weaker. So that's fourth, we have God's presence. Fifthly, we embrace God's testing Verses 17 to 18 allude to this. You can look at it. Suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure over you or that he's left you or that he can't stand you. But like I said earlier, our suffering has purpose. You know what that purpose is? It's to make us more like Jesus. And Peter's alluded to this earlier on in the letter a few times. Earlier in chapter 1, he says it earlier on. "This, this, This fiery ordeal has come upon you to test you, but it's to make you more like Jesus. So how does suffering and adversity do that? Look at how God's described in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. Hear this. It says this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3. It says, It He, God, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now, when you think about gold, right? Gold's put through the fire. There's a process. Gold's put through fire and the intention of the fire is to destroy that gold. But what often happens is that gold has a bunch of impurities in it, and so what will happen is that, as the as the furnace of the fire, the fire, of the furnace is turned up on the gold, all the impurities are start to be drawn; they're drawn out of the gold, and they come to the surface. And so you've got all this stuff, all the impurities in it, that come to the surface. And what winds up happening with the gold is that it becomes stronger, it becomes more pure, it becomes more beautiful, it becomes more valuable in the midst of that situation. The God who redeems us counts your soul and my soul more valuable than gold. And as gold is refined by fire, so are you and so am I. Dan McCartney writes, Christ learned humanhood from his suffering. Therefore, we can learn Christhood from our suffering. We become more like Jesus in our suffering, which happens in the context of everyday life. We don't necessarily become more like Jesus by coming to more church services. I hate to break that. We don't become more like Jesus singing more happy songs and raising our hands and going to Bible studies. Those things are helpful, but they prepare us and equip us for what happens in the everyday stuff of life, which is where faith hits the road, the rubber meets the road. And it's in the context of everyday life most often that we face our suffering and our hardship and our trials, and that's the exact furnace that God will use to make you and I more like Jesus so that we reflect the love and the grace and the beauty of Jesus to the people that God is sending us to in everyday life. It's in the context of everyday life. And here's here's what trials are going to do. Here's what suffering is going to do. They're going to do one of two things. They're either going to deepen us or they're going to destroy us, which is what Peter alludes to. They're either going to deepen you, they're either going to strengthen you, make you more valuable. The tested genuineness of your faith is either going to be proved to be strong, or it's going to destroy you. It's going to crush you. The reality with many people who sit in church oftentimes is that Christianity is just merely an abstract thing. It's a mere uh, men, we have mere mental assents to um, Christianity and beliefs and doctrines. But oftentimes what happens is that it hasn't sunk down into the depths of our soul. It hasn't affected our emotions. It hasn't got down into the pool of our hearts where we are now experiencing. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're loved. We have it up here, but we haven't necessarily experienced here more often than not. And here's what happens. Suffering comes. Trials come. And what happens? Now listen, if you're anything like me, you've got a bunch of issues with yourself. All right? So here's a list of violations maybe, right? Some of us are really angry people. Uh, some, of us are, some of us lie, some of us are rude, some of us are overbearing, some of us talk filthy, some of us uh, like to gossip, some of us like to slander, some of us are control freaks. You ever seen The Voice, Blake Shelton? Some of us are control freaks, right? The list goes on and on and on and on right? and on, and, right? And at some point, you'll find yourself on there if I haven't named you already. All right, I basically just shared to you what all my flaws are, essentially, right? What happens when suffering comes is that all of this stuff is brought to the surface and what happens is that who we really are is put right before us, right before us. Or what we worship or what we hold dear to is put right before us for us to confront the truth and the reality of. The wheat will be separated from the chaff. Those whose hope is merely abstract will be separated from those who have a deep relationship with Christ. Those who have no hope in the gospel at all, Peter says, will be crushed. So trials, sufferings, are either going to deepen you or they're going to destroy you. And for those of us who have our hope in the gospel, the question is, what are we to do? Peter gives this last point, verse 19, very last verse. He says this, we trust God. We trust God. We trust God and we continue to do good because God is faithful as the sovereign creator but he's not just the sovereign creator who, under, who, who knows and who's faithful. He's also the suffering God who understands see, Jesus is, is the, the, the example for us who's come, and Peter said earlier on, he entrusted himself to God even while facing unjust suffering. He did not revile. He did not threaten. He did not respond. He did not get all New England and territorial and defensive, like standing on our ground like us New Englanders like to do. We hold our ground. We're very territorial sometimes. Jesus was none of those things. He continued to entrust himself to God. But Jesus, being more than an example to follow, ensured something pretty significant for you and I. And And it's this, that everything now, because of Jesus and the gospel, is changing. Everything is being transformed under the rule and the reign of the sovereign God. That sin and suffering and death and hurt and pain and all types of trials will not have the final say at the end of the day because of the gospel. Here's what Revelation says. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We have a sovereign God who's accomplished this, but we also have a suffering God. He's our suffering God who understands and he empathizes. God's not just this God who says, yeah, I'm sure that's pretty tough, but he understands because God's been there. You see, Jesus came, God in the flesh, and he lived the life that you and I should have lived, and he endured suffering. He endured suffering so extreme that he can identify with your suffering and identify with my trial and my hurts and my pains when I go through suffering. He faced cosmic abandonment from the most loving relationship that he ever experienced in this world on the cross from his father when the father turned his back on him and Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? His friends left him. He faced physical beatings. He faced mocking and insults for who he claimed to be. He was separated from his dad. He suffered taking upon my sin and your sin upon the cross so that you and I would not have to face eternal sin and suffering once and for all, eternal separation. But he experienced that on the cross so that you and I could be welcomed into the kingdom of God, not by anything that we do or have done, but by what Jesus endured on the cross. So we have a suffering God who identifies with us in our suffering and he can be trusted. So here's my prayer for us this morning, and I'm done. May you and I, FCC Andover, may you and I entrust ourselves to a good and loving and faithful sovereign God who is also our suffering God. Even though you and I may not see the reason at times for the why in particular instances, you can always look to the cross and trust him and know that God's good for it. So here's what I want you to do, man. And here's what I want myself to do in this. While we suffer and while we go through what we'll go through, I want us to remember the who, which is Jesus. And let's continue to do good by loving someone in the midst of their suffering as we're sent from this place this week. Amen?